what's up everybody this is tyler this is danny and we're back with another remotely recorded fried squirms <laughs> we definitely are not how we wanted to do our halloween episode <laughs> no but you know if nothing else we are making sure that we do bring you a, a halloween episode this year right as mentioned before, we ran out of the on-the-nose movies. We did Trick or Treat. We did Trick or Treat. We did Trick or Treats. This year, just going to talk about a movie that takes place on Halloween, Night of the Demons. Before we get to that, let's start getting high. Oh, for sure. Get some green hints. Normally, we bring each other a joint, but we can't do that today. So what are you going to be chiefing on? Okay, so since that is the case, I decided that I'm also going to use my vaporizer, which I mentioned to you a little bit earlier today. And with that, the strain that I'm using in my vaporizer, it is the XJ13, which it is a cross between the widely known strain G13 and another famous strain, actually one of our favorites, I believe, and that's the Jack Herrer. And uh, this one... The breeder is kind of unknown and still listed in Oaksterdam's University clone catalog as being a garden rescue. But uh, aside from that, the one that I got was, you know, of course, here in town has a very citrusy on the nose and flavor, too. Like I said, it's a Tiva hybrid dominant. I think it's like 85% dominant. Really enjoy it. And I do have a joint, which I'll be chiefing on a little bit later on. And that is a purple crack. That is one I have used before. And uh, this one, it's a cross between green crack with a black water male. And uh, yeah, once again, it's another sativa hybrid. And I really enjoy it, man. Hell yeah. Because we're not in the room together, I also rebusted out my vape. So I loaded up some Tahiti Lime. Also a hybrid. I'm not quite sure the breakdown on it, but it is a cross of Skittles and Dosey Dose. Two good strains. Right? I really like the way that the flavor on this comes together. I mean, it's Tahiti lime, so it's really citrusy, but it's a weird kind of citrusy. I'd sort of describe it more as like a sour candy almost. Mm, yeah, that's a good way of putting it. But also... I mean, it tastes a little chemically, but not in like the way where like I'm wondering how they grew it, but just in the way like, I don't know. You know how like citrus type smell in a lot of different cleaners and stuff? So it kind of reminds me right, of that. Right, right, right. I know what you're saying. Which doesn't sound, I mean, I suppose <laughs> I've made it not sound as good as it actually is by comparing it to a cleaner, but I dig it. It's a unique taste. It's pretty strong. Been digging the high from it as well. I mean, it's a, it's a hybrid, so... Get a little oh, bit of the both. Nice. But with that, I think we'll take a, a quick, quick break and uh, get in onto the guts and bolts of Night of the Demons. Guts and bolts. All right. Guts and bolts, Night of the Demons. Not to be confused, we did cover Night of the Demon. Exactly. Not the same films. Not the same. That was, what, 60s? So this is the 1988 not the 2009 remake. Exactly. We do have to make that disclaimer. So, Night of the Demons, 1988, spoiler-free setup. A bunch of teens go to a Halloween party at Hull House, which is an abandoned mortuary that's being thrown by the weird witchy outcast in school, and it's Night of the Demons, so shit goes down. Kind of demony. <laughs> Like, it's in the name. Yeah. 
Hey, I like it. I think that's a good setup for what this film entails. And of course, we do like to talk about the people who go into making the film, whether they be behind the scenes or in front of the camera. And this week, we're going to talk about our director, Kevin S. Penny. And he's a director who's known for some other genre films, such as Witchboard from 1986. He also went on to direct such films as Witch Trap. He also did The Witchboard Part 2. He did Pinocchio's Revenge back in 96. He's also responsible for that 2009 remake. Right, he's a producer on it, right? Yeah, he sure is. And uh, let's see, some other things of note. He did Brain Dead, not to be confused with uh, <laughs> another film with the same title. But this one is the 2007 version. He's also responsible for the film Don't Let Them In and Bigfoot. All right, a writer on this, we have Joe Augustin. And he's known for writing the screenplays for such films as Night Angel and Night of the Demons Part 2. All right. Our cinematographer is David Lewis. He's a man who's got some really cool film titles underneath his filmography. And some of those films include The Hills Have Eyes Part 2. He was a cinematographer on the film UHF. He also was a DP on Night Angel. Some people might recognize his work on the television series Pee Wee's Playhouse from 1988 through 1990. He's also responsible. Yeah, which is really cool. He's also responsible for Night of the Demons Part 2, Leprechauns Part 3 and 4, and the films Children of the Corn Part 5, and a film called Killer Bud. Wow. Killer Bud. Yeah. Hmm. I know. It's like, we uh, we might know something about that. Now I'm wondering wondering already if that... We're probably going to have to watch it just so that we know if it's better or worse than 420 Massacre. Hey, I'm not opposed to that at all. If nothing else, we'll get to smoke some killer butt out of it. Right? All right, yeah. who else we got? Okay, so we have editor Daniel Duncan, and this gentleman's also done some really cool genre films, such things as Witchboard 1 and 2, Night of the Demons Part 2 and Part 3. He's also responsible for editing Leprechauns Part 3 and 4. He's also done Pinocchio's Revenge, the film TikTok, Written in Blood, and the 2010 I Spit on Your Grave. We have music by Dennis Michael Tenney, who is the brother of our director, Kevin Tenney. And he's done some really interesting films as well, as far as composing the music for Witchboard 1 and 2, Witch Trap, Leprechaun 3 and 4, Night of the Demons Part 3, the film TikTok, and Brain Dead. All right, this was produced by Joe Augustin. The production companies were Blue Rider Pictures, Meridian Productions, Paragon Arts International, Republic Pictures, and Scorus Pictures. The distributor was International Film Marketing for the 1988 United States theatrical release. It had a release date of September 9, 1988 in Detroit, Michigan, here in the United States. And then it had another run on October 14, 1988, here in the States. It had an estimated budget of about $1.2 million, and it grossed $3.1 million on a limited run, mind you. Hmm. All right, we have a tagline, and that tagline, uh, it's debatable, but it is, Angela is having a party. Jason and Freddie are too scared to come, but you'll have a hell of a time. Yeah, they, they went for it with that one, didn't they? They sure did, and... We'll talk a little bit about the reasons behind that, (laughs) why they chose some of those names. So I do have some bad news. Yeah, no worries. I just looked it up, and Killer Bud is not a horror comedy. It's just a stoner Uh, comedy. 
Maybe we might have to make an exception. We'll see. We'll the, see. <laughs> the good news is that it has David Faustino in it. That is an interesting name. <laughs> <laughs> For some other reasons. All right. Moving along, we do have a really interesting cast, and I'm going to start it off with actress Kathy Podwell, who plays a role of Judy in this film. And some other things of note that Kathy has been in, she was in such things as Dallas, the TV series. She played Callie Harper Ewing, which I believe was the second wife of J.R. Ewing on that television series run. Mm. Uh, but she was on Dallas from 1988 through 1991. You might have seen her in the film Beverly Hill Bratz. She was also in an episode of Beverly Hills 90210. She was also in the 2013 Dallas as Callie Harper for the episode JR's Masterpiece. And more recently, she was in the short films Unmatched and Be Here Now. All right, we have Amelia Mimi Kincaid. And before we actually start talking about her filmography, I want to talk about a little bit of her dancing, but she does play the role of Angela Franklin in this film. And before she became an actress, she was a professional jazz dancer and choreographer, and she was also a lead dancer when she performed with the likes of Smokey Robinson, Ray Charles, The Four Tops. I think she said she danced for Cher and Donna Summers and some others Damn. as well. Yeah, and then she was featured in the film Breaking 2, Electric Boogaloo. <laughs> she was also in Girls Just Want to Have Fun. She was in the films Body Rock and Fast Forward. Yeah, Lorenzo Lamas' Body Rock? Ah, perhaps. Let's take a look. I think you might be right. <laughs> it is. <laughs> yeah, dude. Uh, she was in uh, some rock videos by the Stray Cats and Scorpions and Sheena Easton. So, yeah, man, some pretty cool stuff. And once again, because we have already mentioned earlier, there are some sequels to this film. She does reprise her role as Angela in Night of the Demons Part 2 and Night of the Demons Part 3. Do you see what her what other you... side job is? Oh, no. I know she's a pet communicator. She writes books. and Yeah. Um, we have yeah, to, yeah, yeah. How, it's not often that we got somebody doing that. We have to bring that shit up. <laughs> yeah, if I'm not mistaken, I did read too where she did some pet communicating with the royal family in England. If I think I want to say it was like maybe for Prince Charles, hmm. something like that. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. But she does a lot of charity work too for like animal rescue and stuff like that, mostly for predatory animals too. She made a big mention of that, one of the behind the scenes features. All right, so <laughs> moving forward, we have William Gallo, who plays a role of Sal Romero in this film. And some other things of note, I did want to bring this up. This is kind of interesting for those who are fans of this gentleman. But he was on a television series entitled Boys Will Be Boys from 1987 through 88. And the only reason I'm really bringing that up is because the other star in that was Matthew Perry. Oh, shit. What? Yeah, I was like, wow, that's really interesting. All right, now, he went on to do nine episodes of Who's the Boss as Al from 1989 through 1992. He did a slew of other like television series um, throughout the 80s and 90s. Then he went on to do such things as uh, Soldiers of Fortune, which was a movie and a television series. Uh, let's see, more recently, he was in Days of Our Lives from 2015 for a whopping 12 episodes. Some other people might have seen him in Pretty Woman as Carlos in the film Crash as Officer Hill. Hmm. All right, we have an actress that we are not unfamiliar with because we have talked about her on episode 143 when we reviewed Silent Night, Deadly Night. And that actress is Linnea Quigley, and she plays the role of Suzanne in this film. 
And not necessarily that we have to go through her filmography, but she is a noted screen queen, uh, most notably from the 80s and, of course, the 90s. Um, maybe just a few films of note. I think people probably recognize her in as they go back and watching the films. She actually was in Nice Dreams and Still Smoking, the Cheech and Chong films. Mm. Uh, she was in a film with Linda Blair from 1984. That film was at Savage Streets. Some people probably know her because she played the role of Trash in The Return of the Living Dead. She was also in such films as Creepazoids, Sorority Babes in the Slime Bowl, Bolorama, A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 4, The Dream Master, where she actually likes a soul that comes out of Freddy's chest. Mm. And like I said, she's a slew of horror films. I mean, she's even doing stuff more recently like Bone Hill Road from 2017, The Barn from 2016, and The Best Laid Plans from 2019. So... It's nice to see that she's still getting work in the genre. All right, we have Alvin Alexis, who plays the role of Roger in this film. He's been in some pretty interesting things, such things as The Wiz, that is a Michael Jackson, and uh, what was it? I think it's Donna Summers was in that as well. Yeah, I believe Joel Schumacher did costume design on oh. The Wiz. Well, it would make sense that his name is brought up because there's another guy I'm going to bring up later <laughs> that was doing some testing with Joel Schumacher for a pretty big film during this time period. All right, uh, let's see here. Alvin has also been in such things as Butterflies and Heat, the film Sweet Liberty, and the film For Love or Money. All right, we have Lance Fenton, who plays the role of Jay Jensen, and the other... Oh, no, no, Schumacher did the screenplay for The Wiz. He was a costume designer oh, before The Wiz. Cool. Yeah. That's still pretty interesting, because it's still a connection, though, with somebody I'm going to bring up a little bit later on. All right, uh, but Lance, like I said, he was in the film Heather's, which is another cult classic. So I was like, if you're only going to be in two films worth of note, and especially during this time period as cult classics, this is one of them. And Heather's is definitely another big one. So mm -hmm. uh, kudos to him for that, which I thought was really cool. All right. So we have Hal Havens. He plays the role of Stooge in this film. And he's gone on to do some other really cool genre films, such as Sorority Babes in the Slime Bowl Bolorama with Linnea Quigley. He's also in the film Witch Trap. You might have seen him in Welcome Home, Roxy Carmichael. He was also in the film Hard Time from 96, the film Life from 99 as Billy, and more recently the film Drop Dead Gorgeous. Some people might recognize him because he did various skits for Mad TV back in 94. And more recently, he played Rancher Bob in two episodes of Fear the Walking Dead back in 2017. Okay. I was like, that's pretty interesting. All right, I've got uh, a couple other actors and actresses, and that'll round out our cast and crew. But I have Allison Barron, who plays the role of Helen in this film. The reason I bring her up is because she was also in A Nightmare on Elm Street Part Two: Freddy's Revenge, which is actually one of my favorite ones in the series, where she was a girl on bus. And she was also in the movie Fear, where she played the South Carolina victim in that movie. And some people might have recognized her in the film Patriot Games, where she played a CIA analyst. All right, we have Philip Tanzini. He plays the role of Max in this film. He's got some pretty interesting things. I mean, nothing like super major. He was in a bunch of television series back in the 80s and 90s, but it wasn't really until I started seeing this that really caught my eye because he started doing a lot of voice acting for video games. <clears throat> and it kind of started with the Command & Conquer video game series. He went on also to do voice acting for Star Wars Jedi Knight. If you ever played Metal Gear Solid Part 3 Subsistence or Snake Eater, he did uh, some soldier voices for that. He did some voice acting for Lara Croft Tomb Raider. 
Lost Planet Part Two, DC Universe Online, where you voiced Booster Gold and Frank Curtis. Oh no! And sure. uh, cool. yeah, and then Metal Gear Solid Snake Eater 3D, where you voiced uh, Soldier. And um, I think you did some miscellaneous stuff in Kung Fu Panda as well. So that's kind of interesting. All right, I've got two other people, actually three other people in that are run out of cast and crew. I have Jill Tereshita. She plays the role of Franny in this film. Mm-hmm. Now she was in the film's Terminal Entry and a third film in a franchise in which we've actually covered before in that franchise is Sleepaway Camp because she was in Sleepaway Camp Part 3, Teenage Wasteland. All right, we have Donnie Jeffcoat plays the role of Billy who is Judy's younger brother in this film. And there was one thing that caught my eye more than any other when I looked throughout his filmography. He was coming off the backbone of doing Ghoulies Part 2 when he got the part for this film. And then he did a couple of spots here and there for television. I think he was in a couple episodes of The Wonder Years. He did a couple of episodes of uh, Step by Step, Mm -hmm. the show I used to watch. He did a couple episodes of Seventh Heaven. But the thing that really caught my eye, and I was like, man, I used to watch this show a shit ton back in the 90s because he was one of the hosts of Nickelodeon's Wild and Crazy Kids. Oh, shit. Yeah. And when I saw him, I was like, oh, my God, I recognize him because he was the blonde haired kid. How the fuck did I not notice that? I Dude, it wasn't until I looked at those credits that it stood out. I was like, holy shit, that's where I recognize him. Aside from, of course, watching this film, who knows how many times. So that that was really cool. I, and the yeah, the last person I have of note is James W. Quinn. He plays clerk number one. So there's two clerks in the convenience store. Yeah. He's the one without the glasses. Let's put it that way. Okay. All right. So he did such films as Witchboard. He was also in Witchcraft. He went on to do the sequels in this film, Night of the Demons Part 2 and Night of the Demons Part 3. I want to save what else he did in these films to when we get into the next section because it, it kind of gives away a, a couple of things. But um, aside from that, that pretty much rounds out the cast and crew. I know you gave us a brief setup of what this film entails, but you definitely should give our listeners some warnings heading into the spoiler section. Language? Nudity. Definitely language. Yep. It's an ass. I mean, there's some violence and some blood and some gore. It's kind of spread all about for a movie called Night of the Demons. Right. I agree. And- there's not a whole lot, but there's enough that we should probably bring it up. Yeah. Let's see. I mean, there's the, the name itself, Demon. So if you're averse to, you know, demonic kind of stuff happening and on Halloween night on top of it, you're probably going to be averse to this stuff. Am I missing anything? Is that pretty much it? I mean, there's some sexual situations, stuff like that. There's some there's oh, some yeah. non-PC language that we do have because it's an 80s film. So there's <laughs> going to be non-PC stuff brought up here and there. But, um, yeah, aside from that, I mean, it's, it's eighties, you know, you kind of, a little bit know what you're going to get yourself into because it's not too far out of, uh, I guess the, the mainstream, so to speak. Yeah, I agree. You know what? Let's just get into how uh, night of the demons made us squeal. How does that make you squeal? All right. Night of the demons, not night of the demon. Although that was <laughs> exactly. a really good movie. I enjoyed that. You have history with this film, right? This was my first time watching it, so. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I knew that, you know, you and I were going to come in in two totally different approaches with this film. So, you're right. I have a huge history with this film. Uh, some would call it a 
love relationship, not even a hate. I love this film. And mainly because it was one of those films during that time period, late 80s, early 90s, where for me, it was a very like foundational slash fundamental film in terms of kind of how horror progressed with my film watching. So I think with this film and probably the Evil Dead films from that time period, those were some of the two that were the most impactful. So uh, it's just one I've always had a soft spot for. So I've, I've known about this film since I was a kid. Hell yeah. All right. So for me, <laughs> I watched it for the first time this weekend. And I, I suppose the short version of how did this make me squeal is it's a great movie. I see why people dig it. Coming into it so late, it feels different because, I mean, at the end of the day, I'm really, really happy I watched this. And being a movie set on Halloween, I super agree with people wanting to watch it around this time of the year. But I can always just go watch Evil Dead and kind of get more of the same thing that this movie's doing. Hey, I can't argue with you there. I'm like, and that's why I knew that we would have two different kind of maybe feelings and just, you know, experiences with this film that are going to separate how we view it. But uh, because it is a review and I do have to be a little bit critical, there are some, some faults that this film has, despite how much I love it. Yeah, I mean, ultimately it felt like Evil Dead light to me, and that's not necessarily a bad thing considering how strong Evil Dead is. Yeah, for sure. But no, no, and, I, but I, I also still like dug it, especially the first time through. I did fall off quite a bit more the second time through. I'm like, I know what's coming. Yeah, exactly. It's I think once you've seen it, you know, it's, it's not one that you have to really pay a whole lot of attention to. It's pretty straightforward. However, I mean, maybe my favorite part of the movie which I almost feel bad saying because it gets out of the way right off the bat, but the opening is fucking killer. Dude, that is one of my favorite parts of the entire movie is the the opening animated title sequence. And the interesting thing about that is that the director, Kevin Tenney, he was opposed to it in the beginning because he felt like for what it was going to cost to have that animation in the film, he could have got another maybe day worth of shooting or at mm. least maybe another scene or two in the film. But it wasn't until he actually saw some of the early testing for it that he was like, yeah, but we definitely need it. And the producer and the writer were really in favor of having it. So they kind of won out. Yeah, dude, the animated opening was super cool. The soundtrack behind it was fucking baller. Super 80s synth score. Good synth score, though. Not just like we're throwing synth on here because it's the 80s. Like I was getting down to some good shit. Yeah, it kind of sets the tone a little bit for the film. And then even beyond that, just the opening sequence sets up the kind of comedy vibe for the movie where it's an 80s comedy where a lot of people are just kind of assholes, but you kind of just roll with it and it's funny. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Like the opening, I mean, right after that, because we have to make mention too that the title sequence is pretty long, but one of the first characters you're introduced to is Stooge and right off the bat, he's just a total dick, you know? He has no problem calling Helen a bitch several times. I feel like we've ran into characters like Stooge before, where you kind of just sit there and wonder, like, why is anybody hanging out with this guy? Yeah, there's nothing really likable about him. Even if you are friends with him and you know he's a dick and stuff, if he has a soft spot, it's like, you know, you got to draw the line somewhere. It's like, dude, you don't have to be a dick every waking moment. Right. Be a dick sometimes. Whatever. That's fine. Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. It's just shit. But you don't have to do it every single second. 
<laughs> the fucking old guy too. The, you stupid bastards! Damn you to hell! Yeah, yeah. It, it kind of sets those things up because Stooge winds up mooning the old man, and then Sal winds up spooking the old man. Right, he plays a little prank on him with a, the fake rat, and then Judy she comes along and you know she's wanting to help, and the old man doesn't want her help, but he winds up calling a whore and all that shit. Like, I wouldn't want to help you anyway. You know, so we're slowly starting to get the introduction to some of our main characters in this film. And one of the things that I wrote down was we learned that there is going to be some change in plans for the evening because Judy's at home. She gets a phone call, what it looks like, maybe her boyfriend or, you know, mm-hmm. her suitor, her male suitor. <laughs> and uh, anyhow, he's like, you know, we're going to blow off the dance because only, you know, dorks and squares go. And uh, we're going to go to a, a real party and it's being thrown by Angela. And we kind of get an, an early sense that Angela is like an outcast kind of weird girl in school, right? The way they described her, I immediately just started thinking of the craft. And I think maybe she is an inspiration for those kind of typecast kind of characters, you know, the outcast, emo kind of girls, gothic girls, which nothing wrong with that, you know. That phone call was one of those scenes where things where I feel like we've just watched too many movies at this point and we're Mm -hmm. too far past 1988 and it (laughs) maybe being a more realistic fake out. But with him suddenly changing plans like that, I was like, oh, he's going to be an asshole by the end of the movie. Oh, yeah, for sure. Like, you know, he's got other intentions, right? Because it's it's set uh, up he, to be a fake out because then once you meet right, Sal, right. you're like, oh, he's the asshole. Mm-hmm. And so Jay must, yeah, be, you're right, Jay right, must right. be the nice guy. You would think. But yeah, he, he I think at this point we've just seen too many of these and I was like, oh, yeah, yeah he's going to be an you're asshole. Right. Yeah, without a doubt. What he's trying to do is set her up. He's like, you know, hey, Max and Franny are going to be there. The only catch is it's going to be a whole house, right? Mm-hmm. And during that phone call is when her brother, he thinks he's going to spook her and he jumps out of the closet. And even the actor, the kid we were talking about, Donnie Jeffcoat, wild and crazy kid host, he said of all the films he's ever been in his career and all the, the roles he's had, he said that was the one, not only seen, but line that he can say verbatim. He said because, you know, at that time period too, he was kind of going through puberty and all that shit. So. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he, he pretty much tells her, he's like, wow, Bidacious boobs kiss. <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm like, first of all, who says that to their sister, man? Well, and then he but, brings uh, him up again when he's talking to Jay. He's like, you just yeah, like he her does. for big cha-chas. And yeah, you're like, well, you know, he's, he's not wrong. But yeah, it's, it is kind of funny, man, in a sense. Some of these lines, like they're so 80s and, you know, you wouldn't really see them in films now. So there's a certain... Ah, I, nostalgia, I suppose, to a lot of this. And that's why I say it's for me because it was set in the 80s and because I just so happened to catch it as a kid during that time period. It still has a, a little bit of that sentimentality, even though it's like kind of frowned upon, you know, like there's some of the shit in it. Well, that's but, the um, thing. Like, like immediately these days, bodacious boobies, sis, is a really fucking weird line. But in the 80s, yeah. there was like a running thing of just having rude younger brothers. Exactly. Like always calling out their sisters on their physical features, mm-hmm. you know, typically. Or like even snooping on their sisters, you know, it's kind of like, uh, what, you know, that's weird. But you're it's, right. It was kind of a, a tropish kind of thing. Well, because like you have like the uh, the little brother from like Teen Witch. Yeah. Good point. 
and I'm sure others I'm blanking on right now, but there's a shit ton of like film little brothers in the eighties that are just shitheads. Yeah, exactly. Like <laughs> after he pulls that little stunt and then uh, the doorbell rings, you know, and Sal's fucking with him. They have their little exchange back and forth and he offers him a quarter and, you know, he's like, what do you think I am? Some kind of scumbag. So I'm my sister out for a quarter and, then he offers him like two bucks. Yeah. But then he offers him two bucks. He's like, all right, uh, you're still not going to believe me, but you know, it's up to you to go. He tells him it's going to be a whole house and all that shit. But then like right after that, because he winds up just taking the kid's mask, you know, he's like, Oh yeah, thanks. He drops one of those non PC things. And like, that's another example of the eighties that you will not see right. or hear of because you will get doxxed for the most part. <laughs> you know, and, and it has its time and place. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's not that I'm against or nothing like that. I'm just saying, is if you're going to take this film for what it's worth, is you have to remember the time period it came out. I'm not saying that as an excuse. It's just it is what it is. Uh, <laughs> so I mean, there's some fun stuff that goes on as people are actually arriving to the party. But mm-hmm. since they're heading to the party, I want to bring this up real quick. Obviously, the movie was setting up these characters for us to be following. I didn't think that the characters they set up were going to be the only ones at the party. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> I thought there was going to the be like is... I thought there was going to be like twenty other kids, and it was just that we were going to keep following Stooge and Roger and everybody during the party. Yeah, yeah, I know what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, like these are the main characters, and they're going to be the focal point at the party. Not necessarily they are literally the entire party. <laughs> Because that was, but I was like, oh, get. this party just got real lame when it's just these fuckers. Oh, <laughs> uh, dude. Uh, I do want to mention before they even get to the party, the very first thing that you see of Linnea Quigley. Is oh, yeah, Linnea's the, ass. Uh, yeah, exactly. And she, she makes a mention of it. She said uh, the first time that she had seen this film after its screening was like about a year or so later uh, at a drive through theater, or a drive-in theater, I should say. And she said she forgot that that was her first scene because, you know, you, you <laughs> typically shoot scene out of order. So you can't remember which scene is going to be the first one you're in. And she's like, oh, my God, that's it's like a, she was so embarrassed. But uh, still, it's fun because she has a really good line during that scene. And, you know, she's teasing those clerks because the whole point is Angela's stealing party favors for her party. Right. Which she fucking and, uh, she makes out. She grabs as much shit as I fucking perry farrell did in the i've been caught stealing once video do i you know it makes you wonder if that was an inspiration <laughs> for that music video but i was like yeah she was having her own little version of supermarket sweep and, <laughs> and the uh the little drop-in store but linnea quigley's line that she says to those clerks i thought was really funny man it's, you guys have sour balls yeah and he's like well you sure do <laughs> And he's like, well, that's too bad. I bet you don't get many blowjobs. <laughs> like, wow. How often do you hear that, right? Oh. And then they have their little exchange out there. And she says the most valley girl kind of thing Linnea Quigley does after that. She's like, I just want to look good for the boys. <laughs> um, yeah. We should point out, too, with Linnea Quigley entering the scene in this movie that these characters are all technically supposed to be like late high schoolers. Right, right, right. Teenagers, essentially. Linnea Quigley was 29 when this movie was made. Yeah, yeah. Well, like, see, this film was 
I think they shot it in 86, mm. right? So she was like 26, 27, I think she said. And she even was like against the idea of doing this film because her agent was like, you know, they were looking for a set, like, you know, 17, 18 year old, whatever high schooler. And she's like, you know, I'm in my late twenties. <laughs> you know mm-hmm. It's like, she said she went in and she tested really well. They liked her. They called her back like the next day and she got the part. And it, she's like, once she met the other actors and actors and stuff like that. And of course, work with Kevin. She said she really felt comfortable and she enjoyed what she had to do. But you're right. I mean, you could, you could tell she was, she's not 17 or 18. Dude. Well, and not that like the others are passing for being that young either. But no, I, no, no, I, no, no, I'm, I'm pretty sure of the kids. Of all the bunch. Yeah. She was yeah, the yeah. oldest. For sure. Because a lot of them outside of her were like 18, 19, 20, around that age group, 21, something like that. Some of that Dawson cast. So they were. Yeah, exactly. They weren't too far out of the, the age group, so to speak. <laughs> dude, yeah, dude, I cracked right. up so hard at the fucking Sour Balls line, too. That was so good. I was like, oh my God, that's so funny, man. All right, so once all that stuff starts to happen, you finally get a widescreen shot, I suppose, or a view of the whole house, right? And it's the matting because that's not really what the house looks like. Right. Of course, right? Dude, that place is um, big. It'd be fun to throw a party there. I'll tell you what. I know, and it's like, that would be pretty gnarly, dude. But you get a little bit of, of background because of the expo, I think, that Max has given. And he's talking about the whole family, and it was like a murder-suicide on Halloween night and all that stuff. I think about 80% of Max's lines are exposition, and uh, some of them are really well, awkward. So it is like history. Yeah. There's a line that said, I know it's a direct quote from a different film because it happens a lot in this movie, but Max actually is the one who says it when they were like, you know, whole house was like this big funeral parlor. And he's like, yeah, biggest one in four counties. I was like, dude, if you're really paying attention, that is a direct quote that Will Wheaton's character has in Stand By Me. Oh, shit. Towards the end, <laughs> right when they're talking about dicks, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> and he said, he said that line to Kiefer Sutherland. I was like, that's right out of uh, Stand By Me. And that's a Stephen King reference. That's fucking um, funny as shit. Yeah, I was like, that has to be the reason why it was said in that film. There's no uh, because there was a lot of ad living and improvisation. So anyway, I thought that was kind of clever. When Max starts stethoscoping the wall, I'm like, uh-huh. oh, well, yeah. that's weird enough that it has to come back later. Yep, and he mentions too that evil spirits can't cross running water, or, you know, a stream or whatnot. So I thought that was really cool and. um I think he mentions, if I'm not mistaken, somewhere around there, there was like a squaw who was found with the intestines of her, what do they say, it was a papoose or something like that. Yeah. Um, but all that meant was like, it was a woman, basically a young woman, who uh, sounds like killed her young child. Yeah, I can't remember the exact, exactly how the story went, but it was actually pretty fucked up when you are paying attention to the details. It really is, because, I mean, really what it leads to is that they were finally in the house, Party's kind of kicking off and all that stuff. They're playing music. And the whole time is Linnea Quigley's character, Suzanne, is like trying to flirt with the, the guys, you know, like shaking her ass in front of everybody. And Jay, Linnea is trying saying, to fucking get it that night. Yeah, she was wanting something. <laughs> but Jay winds up leaving Judy so he could like kind of dance with Linnea. But then this is what happens is they, they decide that they want to do a seance. And this is when 
Stooge and Roger find the standing mirror in the other room because Stooge is fucking with Roger, right? Mm-hmm. Roger is not down with that house from the get-go, dude. Like, he doesn't want to be there. He's like, I ain't having it. He's the only one with any yeah, fucking sense in the place once things start going crazy. Exactly. And by traditional, or at least conventional standards in the horror films, Typically, at this point in the film, with a black actor, especially a black male, he'd be getting their off. time is kind of. I was like, their time is kind of running out. It wasn't getting ahead, right? But anyhow, they're in that whole seance. Is Angela's telling them to look into the mirror? They're trying to do like a past life seance, is what they're trying to do, I suppose. And as that's happening, Rogers turned away. He's not looking at that shit. It starts to work. Helen sees the demon in the mirror, the reflection, mm-hmm. she starts to spaz, you know, freak out, rightfully so. And then you see a cut of what looks like a corpse or somebody's face against the mirror. And then it falls over and they start to blame her. And That's right. You know, she's, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, okay, that's when shit's really starting to pop loose. Because what we find out, and because we're in the spoiler section, it's she's seeing her own death. And she doesn't really, I don't think she understands it. Maybe, maybe she does. And it freaked her out. But regardless, uh, Judy kind of comforts her. And it's kind of at that moment when the spirits start to come out of the basement, out of that furnace. And then the party, they start to detect the smell and the, the temperature drops. So you know that's when typically ghosts or spirits have inhabited the house, right? So there's yeah, a couple this things. This is when she really starts to pop loose. Right. I realized I was trying to make sense of my notes because I'm fucking stoned and I have just <laughs> terrible fucking childish handwriting. And I realized that we skipped one of my favorite lines of the movie, unfortunately. Mm. When they first pop in and there's the whole fucking shit with like Sal and Jay and then like fucking a stooge comes in and all that shit. And he gets called Count Dingleberry, the flaming asshole of Transylvania. <laughs> That's really funny, dude. And also, I when they went really to go, line, one liner. Yeah, and when they went to go do the dancing and shit, you got the fucking the pulling out of the fucking strobe light. She's she used to be an acid head. Yeah, he's just like with her mom. <laughs> yeah, I, I, like I, I do like the fact that they're using certain lines like that. They're, I mean, they're, it's comical for a comic sake, and it loosens up the film a little bit. You know, it's not taking itself too serious. Which is another thing I like about it. This is the very first instance of possession, right? Because once the seance is over, once you're back into the main room, Suzanne, when they quickly is putting on her lipstick and then you can tell a spirit has entered her, right? And she's starting to change and she's starting to become a little bit more flirtatious with Stooge. She's like, no, I want, I want to go off with Stooge. I, either way, it seemed to me like Linnea Quigley was going to be getting something in her mouth that night. Yeah. And they're like, what the fuck? Roger and Helen, they want to leave. So what I thought was another funny thing is Angela like throws the keys to them. She's like, all right, you can guys go ahead and leave. Whatever. Don't wreck into the gate. Open it before you leave. <laughs> and Lene is like, what the fuck? She's like, don't worry. You're not going anywhere. Party's just beginning. But then this is when everybody starts to kind of break up. Like Jay and Judy and Max and Fran, they want to go explore. And Susie winds up kissing Angela. That's when She's passing the spirit on to Angela. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, she leaves to go with Stooge to the bathroom, Susie, that is. And that's when Max tells the group 
about the little Indian tribe and how they wouldn't want to set foot on the property because of the running water and all that stuff. Um, so and that's first, when he tells the story of the Indian squaw. When they were all still together, there was the cool little bit where they actually did like the That 70s Show spinning around the room. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That had me cracking up a little bit just because I know that it wasn't a reference to that 70s show because this fucking predates it by 20 years. But I was just like, oh, fuck, I've seen this. This is fucking funny. This is great. But never mind. I just wanted to bring that up, I guess. <laughs> you know, no, there's some really cool like camera, like even on the kiss when oh. Susie and, and Angela, they do like that push zoom and like kind of zoom out to where it lets you know there's an emphasis and there's certain score hits that puts an emphasis on certain scenes and that too, because I That's think typically a, with films like this, it can get schlocky in certain films that have like a low budget. And, but there's a lot of things that were done tastefully in this film in terms of angled shots and just the way it was filmed overall. So yeah, the kiss, that's what reminded me. The other kind of weird thing about this movie, when you sit there and think about it, like Helen's the first one to see the demon. Mm Mm-hmm. Suzanne's the first one to get possessed. Why is Angela the leader? <laughs> this film, that's what I'm saying. This film is not a perfect film because there are some <laughs> some razor thin plot holes. You know, here's what Kevin Tenney said about his film. He said that the character of Judy, who is supposed to be our lead character apparently in this film, mm-hmm. is that originally she was supposed to be dressed up as Red Riding Hood. Okay. And they said that within the context of the film, it wouldn't make a whole lot of sense. So instead, they dressed her up in what she does wear in the film as more of an Alice in Wonderland. Right. He said that way, when shit in the film doesn't make sense, he said it doesn't have to because <laughs> the house is fucking with her. <laughs> you know, like, for instance, where you can lock yourself in a room, right, in, in a possessed house that can also pick out like pins and doors mm-hmm. <laughs> at will, but it can't open a door for itself, you know, when it's looking for people or what have you. So in the case of Suzanne being the first one possessed, essentially Angelo's party, right? Mm-hmm. That's the whole reason they're all there. I think just the kiss itself is maybe it's, it's way of trying to explain that like, Oh, well, Suzanne was the most susceptible because maybe she's the most narcissistic. So she was easy because she's always has a compact mirror and shit. Mm-hmm. I, who knows? I'm just, I'm just trying to try to make sense of something that doesn't make sense. But the kiss just kind of signifies, okay, now Angela's possessed. Now she can, I guess, take control of the party and all this other stuff. Who knows? That's just my little take on it, I suppose. Yeah. That's just one of those things where it's like, why is she the leader when anyway, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I, I know what you're saying though. It, it's just like, why would Suzanne be the first one? You, it would make more sense of Angela than everybody else brought out Angela being possessed. Exactly. So what this entails though, right. Is once all this happens is Suzanne goes to the bathroom. She locks herself in. Stooge is like, okay. Oh, you know, whatever. Then it's, Sal is in the main room with Angela, who winds up, in my opinion, when I think of this film, there's certain scenes that stand out the most. It always reminds me of this film. And this scene in particular reminds me of this film is her demon dance to Bauhaus's Stigmata Martyr. I thought like, it was that, really that funny. I thought it was really funny that just earlier this weekend we were talking about The Crow 
and how he yeah, was based Peter off Murphy. of Peter Murphy from Bauhaus. And then I turn on this movie and fucking some Bauhaus comes on. Yeah. And I love everything about that scene, how, you know, they're just kind of hanging out and she's by the fire and South is kind of like, he's not necessarily not into it, but he's not entirely into what she's doing. Mm -hmm. You know, he just more or less is like, all right, let's see what happens. And then the music kicks on and then she starts to dance and then the strobe light starts to kick in. I'm like, this is what I really like about this film. And then she does her dance. And because she's a professional dancer, she wanted to choreograph her own dance. And so everything she does is because that's what she wanted to do. Mm -hmm. You know? So I think it added a little, you know, extra flair, so to speak, its own little touch to the film. But uh, so I was like, man, I ain't into this shit. She's acting freaky because there's like a little, you know, psych out jump scare moment with, Stooge coming up behind him and mm -hmm. like he's like you know you can have this one basically he would tell him I'll get the fuck out of here this is getting weird they start kind of getting flirty Angela and Stooge that is the music changes to something like I don't know some 80s ballad kind of stuff and uh, she winds up biting his tongue off is what happens and that's kind of your first real bit of gore in this film because yeah. it looked pretty good it looked pretty good you mentioned that Sal was like, it's time to get the fuck out of here. Did we mention the fact that Roger and Helen already tried to get out and there's suddenly no gate and then she disappears? I, yeah, I think that's where it's getting to. Yeah, where she, like, they can't find their way out because all there is is that big ass brick wall. And they're like, I know there's a gate around here. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> he turns around, she's gone. They're like, what the fuck? <laughs> that yeah. would spook the shit out of me. Right? He freaks out. Once again, most sensible one in the group. Just goes and, like, tries to sleep it off in the fucking car. I know. I was like, you know what? That's not a bad idea. Not, not a bad call. A bad idea. <laughs> There's a <laughs> lot worse myself. calls you could be making right now. I agree, and that's not one of them. Maybe it's not the best call. Ass, right, but it's better than being in that spooky-ass house right now. Fuck yeah. <laughs> All right. Here's another one of those scenes. When I think about this film, 100% stands out. Not only because it's an iconic scene, but because I saw the scene at an early age that it was super impressionable upon me. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Yeah. Um, so it was one of those things you can kind of brag about, but it involves Linnea Quigley once again, because her character, Suzanne is in the bathroom with lipstick and she's already been drawn on her face. And she decided that she wants to include her breasts in a part of this painting that she's doing. <laughs> you know what I mean? But what she winds up doing I don't know if you want to talk about it or what you thought about it. Well, first, did she meet one of her husbands getting fitted for those fake breasts? She did. And that's kind of one of the guys I wanted to talk about, too. And the special effects guy, makeup specifically on this, is Steve Johnson. And the interesting thing about him is he's worked with guys like Rick Baker. And he's worked on film like Videodrome, Ghostbusters, and the howling and stuff like that. Uh, so some, some really cool stuff. But long story short is he literally just opened his studio right before uh, he got hired for this film mm. because what he was supposed to be doing was shooting Michael Jackson's was a smooth criminal video. Right. Oh, okay. But he got fired <laughs> and he said like almost instantly, it was like, it was almost kind of fate. He like, he got the phone call from one of the producers asking if he wanted to do the special makeup effects on that in the demon. So he did. And you, what you were asking is Steve Johnson met Linnea quickly because, you know, he's doing makeup on all these people. And it took, they said it took hours. And when I say hours, 
at minimum for most people, I'd say five to six hours. In a lot of cases, 11 to 12 hours of applying makeup effects because it was all practical in this film. There are no digital effects when mm-hmm. it comes to these creatures. Yeah, so um, long story short, he said when, when he was doing makeup, specifically with her, he said, you know, most people, they'll close their eyes because you have to do all the makeup and, you know, whatever. He said, but she kept her eyes open and she would look at him and he's like, did she like me? It's, what's going on? <laughs> so he said it felt, for him, it felt like he was in high school because of the feelings he was having and whatnot. But they really didn't start dating, he said, until after the film wrapped. Okay. So, yeah, even though they met, you know, because of this film, it wasn't until after the film when they really kind of hit it off. But there's an interesting thing to note about that scene, not only the, the fact that she's using lipstick and what she does with it, but how it was pulled off, right? So I know I'm kind of skirting around it, but the scene I'm talking about is where she sticks the lipstick inside of her breast, right? Yeah. So, so as, a, as a kid, I'll just say as a kid, I was like, what the fuck and how the fuck did they do that? It was so weird to me how much more disturbing it seemed by how like not gory it was. It was just this simple just slip in and whoop. Yeah, and then that was it. You're like, damn, her booby ate that damn lipstick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't it wasn't like something I was expecting. I was like, what what why? <laughs> <laughs> what was that? <laughs> right. So um like I said, that was one of those things that anytime I think of that scene, like though it brings me back, it's like, man, first time seeing that, I was like, I have never seen anything like it and I have never seen anything like it since. In terms of that, like, that was fucking weird. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> kind of out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. But the cool thing about it, right, with be, being that it was Steve Johnson who did that, and he said what helped him was when he worked on Videodrome. There's a scene, for people who are familiar with James Woods, where he pulls a gun out of his stomach in one of the scenes. Mm-hmm. And he said the way they pull that off is you make a cast, and you, you make it as, of course, as like the person's body as possible, but it's kind of an extension because of the prosthetics. So the further down it went, the further the prosthetics expanded out from the actual actor. Okay. Right. So that's what they did with her is they made a mold or a cast where basically it was from her neck down to, I guess probably her abdomen somewhere was the cast they made. And he said, in order for it to make it look realistic on film, he says he knew he couldn't do like, I think he said like plaster and stuff like that because it would be too obvious, right? Mm-hmm. He said the only way that he could think to pull it off and make it really look flesh-like and, you know, just boom, you don't have to like show a, a wide cut and then go into the actual effect cut. He said he didn't want that transition where it was obvious you were going into a cut. He said he was just wanted to be a seamless. And so what he did was he used gelatin as the mold. Okay. And so... As soon as she was done, you know, being fitted, they did the scene. It was one take, and that was that's all they needed. Dang. Um, yeah, so I was like, that looked good, and it was fucking wild. It looked good. I could tell it was fake when she opened her shirt, just because as good as it looked, it didn't move right. You can definitely tell us in the fact. <laughs> yeah. Her chest was extremely flat for not actually being flat, if that makes sense. <laughs> I know you're saying, like, there was a huge, just her sternum. <laughs> yeah. You could see all of that, yeah. But it looked really fucking good. And, like, I didn't expect it to just, like, bloop, 
slide in there and I was like, oh, that almost oh, makes it God. worse that it just. That's why like, like being, I want to say the first time I seen this, it's hard sometimes to, to think exactly when because it's been so long, but I probably saw this for the first time when I was like nine or 10. You know what I mean? So it wasn't too far after this movie came out. So it would have been like 89, 90, 91, somewhere around there when I first seen this film. But like I said, even back then when I first seen that, I was like, man, what the fuck? That was the craziest thing I had seen at that time. <laughs> you know what I mean? The bigger thing, by this point, Judy and Jay have had their little moment where he basically reveals that he was only going out with her because he yeah, thought because that she fucked Sal. Yeah. And thought that she'd be an easy lay. And when she's like, no, nah, I, I don't want to fuck tonight. He's like, well, I'm going to go find someone who does. Yeah, Which, I know. Like, what a fucking dick, man. What a dick. So he walks into the room right after all that shit happens. He obviously doesn't see the fucking lipstick going in the titty. Right, that's like almost immediately after he walks in. He's like, oh, hey, what's going on in here? And she's like, oh, you want to see my other tit? And that's basically what she's doing. And they start to hook up. But that was the thing that that pulled me out for a second because he's like sitting there and he's like, oh, nice paint job. But I think it needs a little touching up and shit. And she's, you know, mm -hmm. she's creeping over. She's on her knees. She starts unzipping him. And he's like, oh, OK, that's what we're doing. And if Linnea Quigley's already on her knees in front of you, unzipping you, you just wait and get the blowjob, right? You don't suddenly go down and like lay down with her. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's like that's not what she was doing. <laughs> I don't think I could be wrong. You know what I mean? And I, yeah. Because like as soon as he's like, of that. as soon as he's like, oh, that's what we're doing. He starts to go lay down with her. And I'm like, like okay. if that's happening to me, that's I'm different. I'm going to keep standing there because good things are about to happen. <laughs> yeah, I know, man. What the fuck, dude? I mean, no, good things are going to happen any, either way, but like, right, 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 right. You can use one to warm up to the other. I'm fine. I wonder too, if they spoof this, and uh don't be a menace yeah don't be a menace yep, yep, yep. because of that because there's like an innocence to it then there's a, it switches to that demonic possession kind of thing <laughs> you know but the her, point being too is uh, her going for his eyes that was pretty good yeah I, I thought it was funny because she's like why are you looking at me he's like what are you talking about don't don't look at me stop looking at me and then she you know she rocks back and then when she comes back She's in her full demonic, you know, makeup and regalia. And you're like, holy fucking what the shit. Right. <laughs> yeah, it fucks him up good. And yeah, she gouges his eyes out pretty good. Uh, there's a scene in between that, too, with Angela, where she's still by the fire. And I think it's Sal. He's like, what are, you know, what, like, what's going on? And she turns to him and her fingers are on fire. So like, I've just been warming up next to the fire or whatever. Mm -hmm. The reason I bring that up, I mean, it's not necessarily because of what she says or anything like that, but the makeup and stuff in order to pull that off, you know, I guess they use like a, I think we've talked about it before. I think it's called Zell gel. It's like a fire retardant uh, gel that you can use for uh, fire effects and whatnot. Okay. Yeah. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. But this, I don't know if it was like a, an offshoot of that or whatever, but she said it would, Steve Johnson told her, is like, you know, you got basically six seconds before it starts to melt into your fingers, you know, starts to burn your fingers. So she said that she had a count in her mind, boom, 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 say the line, five, six, dump my finger in a cold vat of water or else my fingers would get burned. So they were doing some risky shit in this film. <laughs> yeah. Um, so think about that whenever you see that scene again. It's like that was a, for her, she had six seconds and dump her fingers into a fucking water or else she would have got burned. 
Dang. Um, yeah, so she pulls that off. We already mentioned Jay gets his eyeballs plowed out. This is where Roger, because he's in the car, the car starts to shake, so it kind of wakes him up, and he thinks it's Stooge fucking with him. But what happens is Helen winds up revealing her face that she saw in the mirror, right? Mm-hmm. She gets either thrown onto the hood of the car or whatever, see her face on the windshield. You know, it fucks with Roger, of course. That looked really good. Yeah, I was like, it, you know, it, it came back. There's a couple of things that come back. There's a scene, too, I need to mention. It's kind of early on in the party sequence where Judy's trying to light the candles and Angela comes over and lights the candle or whatever. And she says something to the effect to Judy. She's like, you don't want to be littering because it'll upset the spirits of the house or whatever. Right. Mm-hmm. You could tell it kind of weighs on Judy a little bit and she wound up holding it. But that actually comes back to pay dividends in the end of the film as well, because it's not something you think about in this film. So that that was kind of clever. They They do tie up some loose ends in this film because of plot devices earlier on in the film. That's kind of one of them. But somewhere along that mix, that's where Stooge winds up killing Max and Franny because they're, you know, they're boning in the casket. Ooh, Uh, Franny. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. They're like, you know, they've never made it in a casket. They want to get that off their bucket list. It's just too bad for them. Stooge winds up breaking her neck and slamming Max's arm completely off. (laughs) Well, When it cuts to works. when it cuts to them boning, it's pretty funny because he's like, "Ah, this is worse than my dad's Volkswagen." And I <laughs> Did fucking you make you think of all that. <laughs> yeah, dude, I fucking lost it. I'm like, "Oh, he's gonna screw someplace uncomfortable, like the back of a Volkswagen." Man, I'm just saying, it makes me wonder if this film has a bigger impact than I think we think in terms of its, you know, cult status, so to speak. And um, she's like, oh, "I don't bend that way." That, dude. She's like, I don't bend yeah, that not. way. And I'm like, how are you trying to bend? Because all you're doing right now is riding him. I, I know, know that's all you have to bend. I, yeah, I don't know, man. I don't know what she's talking about. No, my problem. <laughs> <laughs> Somewhere along the, the line, too, this is where Sal and Roger kind of bump into each other. And I put they team up. And because, you know, they're wandering around the house, Judy has been left by herself. But they wind up finding Judy. But then that's when Angela starts to come after all of them. Mm-hmm. There's a really good line that I like too because Judy winds up running into the bathroom and she finds what happened to Jay, you know, and uh, Suzanne. And Suzanne like scares Judy out of the room, and then she has a line. And I like I like what she says too about this scene. Is the line she says is "Run, Judy, run, see, Judy, run." run. But what she said because she had been in makeup and she didn't want to do the scene in makeup. It's like, wouldn't it be scarier if I did it out of makeup, just like in my regular character, you know, and say it? And she said uh, she made the producer and Kevin think that it was their idea when it was really her idea because it worked in her favor. She didn't have to wear makeup and shit. That's <laughs> she, yeah, so that was pretty cool. And this is, like I said, where Judy winds up finding the armless Max, and she has kind of a scream queen moment herself because she's not a bad belter when it comes to screaming. No. Uh, the arm kind of like, you know, grabs onto her and she's like freaking out and shit, screaming. That arm when you it's know, just laying there. The yeah, that dude. arm prop was fucking killer. That was a good fucking ripped off arm. There were some really interesting people who did some of the makeup in this too. I'll, I'll talk about somebody a little bit later on too. Once again, outside of Steve Johnson. All right. I put uh, Angela and Sal. This is eventually where they're like on the roof because Judy winds up, I think she goes up to the balcony and I think it's Roger who's kind of like 
calling to her mm-hmm. or like trying to tell her to be quiet, but like come down and she's being all loud and shit. And then Angela comes out and then Sal and her have that confrontation. And they wind up falling to their deaths where Sal gets impaled. It looks like yep. Angela looks like she's dead. I'll put uh, Judy winds up jumping down. She falls and she and Roger kind of join up. Now it's kind of their story. And they wind up hiding and running back into the crematorium. They don't realize that's where they're at at first. Because right? uh, Judy thinks the door, as she calls it, is a way out until she reaches in and finds a skull. And she's like, oh, shit, this is actually the furnace. It's an oven. And she kind of recalls what Helen said about evil on Halloween. And they're like, you know what? We're just going to wait till dawn. We're just going to wait it out in this room. Fucking Roger Hulk smashes that shit. <laughs> well, then all the demons, you know, like Angela and Stooge and everybody else are starting to bang on the door and what have you. And this is where I say, you know, when you think of this movie logically or illogically, it's like they can't open the door, but the hinges or the pins start to come off. And that's how they break in. But the whole time, too, as you had mentioned, is Roger, like they're bending the gas pipe or the, the gas line, the gas pipe itself. Mm-hmm. And because Judy saved that lighter from earlier, right? Oh, shit. Ignite. Okay, right. I wondered where that lighter That's came from. Gotcha. Okay. Sometimes, like, I can't tell you how many fucking times I've seen this movie. I don't even think that dawned on me until I started taking my notes for this. It's like, oh, shit. That's why this scene even has the significance it has. It doesn't mean that she's a goody tissue because she doesn't want to litter or whatever. It's like it's actually kind of like the check off the gun in a sense. You know, it comes mm-hmm. to pay dividends later on in the film um, because she winds up blasting them with the fire and it gives them enough time to escape out of the house. Kind Wait, of unfortunately, though, for them. Before she could actually that get that lighter wall. lit with how long she was sitting there trying to fucking light that gas. Like all they did was fill that entire room of gas. So that entire place should have just fucking blown up. Oh, my God. dude. <laughs> <laughs> None of it ended the film for everybody. Because <laughs> like, she takes fucking uh, forever to get that going. They're in the room. They've already been banging yeah. on it. They've had that shit unhooked for like a minute. Like, Yeah, exactly, man. But like I said, when, when you think about this film, you, you got to suspend your disbelief somewhat. You know, <laughs> if you're going to have fun with this. But you're right. I think, you know, realistically, you're going to blow everybody to fucking good shit. Like I said, they get out and they start climbing the wall. And this is where some of the foundation for that wall, they said there was only like a section. That wall wasn't very large as far as width-wise. It was only a couple of feet width-wise long. And height-wise, they said it was about eight or nine feet tall. So at one time, it probably wrapped around the property, but it got knocked down. But there was some bob wire that was left over. And they're like, oh, while they were filming, they, they initially wanted to use like a wooden fence. Mm-hmm. And there was going to be an impaling scene and... That would have been kind of like the end of Angela and, you know, it was kind of like Judy's escape, what have you. But because they had that brick wall, they kind of wrote in, you know, oh, let's use the bob wire for the escape. That adds a little bit more to like the struggle and the anxiety of escaping and what have you, you know. Mm-hmm. So they kind of wrote that into the film, you know, so they had to do some stuff like that. But uh, <laughs> the thing that gets me about this film is as much as I love this film, I like, there's no fucking way. Judy's ever making it over that damn wall. The way no. those fucking demons are at her, man. She's toast, dude. Well, and and they like, even show when Stooge first grabs her, it fucking burns her, and then they never yeah. do anything with that again. 
they show up for like one second and then nothing. That's what I'm saying. It's like, she's done. Like, I can believe Roger getting over that wall and surviving, which we still need to talk about, Roger. Dude, um, Roger, first, before they even make it to the wall, like, as they're getting out of the house, because even after the fucking improvised flamethrower, they still almost get re-caught in the house before they make it outside. Uh-huh. And Roger <laughs> throwing himself out. through that fucking window, <laughs> completely thinking yeah, he's that he's going to fucking die, even though he's on the f- first fucking story. <laughs> Yeah, he didn't give a fuck. Stop <laughs> getting out of here, man. That was funny shit, though, because then they, they show him, and he's just laying there, and he's like, oh, shit, I fucking, I lived? Uh, okay. I'm, I'm not dead? Yeah, he winds up being the hero because he lives Judy up out of her situation. And they make it over the wall. They happen to make it till dawn, which, it, once again, that's like your evil dead right there. It's kind of a, a little bit of a ripoff, I will say that. But they wind up walking back through the neighborhood, right back home. And we see a shot again of that old guy. And he's, you know, being a grumpy old asshole. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And he goes back inside and his wife apparently made some pie, right, overnight. And she's telling him, you know, hey, use some of those apples you left over. He's like, what apples? She's like, you know, the ones from last night. And uh, she wound up using the ones that the old guy was using to have out the trick or treaters, in which he happened to put blades in. Because at the beginning of the film, when uh, his groceries fall out of the bag, you see he has a pack of razor blades with those apples. Yeah, and he gets all evil old man laugh about it and shit. And... Yeah, and you know, he gets his, his rightful due, I suppose, if you want to call it that. Because the very last line in this film. Is actually the old lady and what she says to him, and I like it. She's like, Happy Halloween, dear. <laughs> that's it, man. So that's your film, Night of the Demon, 1988. Fuck, yeah, it was good. Dude, the bookends are really fucking good. Like I said, I love the beginning of the movie, and not just that animated opening, but the whole, like, introducing all the different characters sequence with the old man. And then at the end, yeah, with his exactly. with him getting his comeuppance, like, that was fucking great. The razors going through his throat were fucking great. I kind of think the bookends are the best parts of this movie, even though there are things in between that I do enjoy. Yeah, and that's the thing. Like, there's moments where this movie does kind of slog, and it's like, uh, you know, it did what it had to do, I guess, to carry the film. Because there are some moments where you're like, eh, it's kind of eh. Even as an adult, it's like, eh, there's moments where I can tune out, you know what I mean? But the things that, for me, like I said, that always draws me back are, as a kid, I already mentioned The Evil Dead for obvious reasons, but movies that, that dealt with like demonic possession or demons in general, mm-hmm. they hit me a little bit harder because it was one of those unknown factors. You know, there at that, especially at that age, there's no way I could prove or disprove something right. demons did, did or did not exist. It was just the idea that something like that. And at that time, too, I was a night owl. So I like to stay up, you know, past my bedtime when everybody else was sleeping. Mm-hmm. You know, being 9, 10, 11, 12 years old, staying up till 1, 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. That was already kind of spooky and taboo as it was. You know what I mean? And then you throw on films like this and The Evil Dead, they even hit harder because after the film's over, you're still stuck with the idea and thoughts of that film left you with. You know? <laughs> so some of those films rattled me a little bit. But now I look back on them in nostalgia and be like, even though it's not the most popular film of the 80s or the most popular franchise or anything like that, it's one of those films that will always play like that fundamental role of my love for horror in the first place. And that's another one of those, those films, too, I like to watch on Halloween. So Yeah. 
And like I said, it has, a, it has a place in my heart of hearts. I mean, we both keep bringing up Evil Dead, and I think ultimately that's one of the things with this movie is that the demons in this feel too much like Deadites, just not done as well. Right, right, right. And, you know, it also came out during a time period when we've mentioned, too, there is not maybe not necessarily this time period, like late 80s, but, I mean, still on the back end of some of that satanic panic and, mm-hmm. you know... Um, ratings boards and we've talked to about like censorship and things like that with maybe not so much this film, but just in horror and shit like that in general, where it was still playing with some taboo subjects. Like I wanted to talk about Roger because we had mentioned earlier, typically in horror films, not always, but specifically in this time period, if you were a black actor in a horror film, you were typically one of the first victims as well. So you didn't have very much on screen time. So the fact that Roger was not only one of the survivors, but he was also a hero really kind of broke a lot of stereotypes in terms of the horror genre. And it's one that maybe doesn't get paid enough attention to. And not that it, you know, it needs a lot of spotlight, but it is kind of, you know, kind of a groundbreaking film in that sense. Yeah. I mean, overall, I keep feeling like I'm, I'm shitting on it, but I do enjoy it. No, 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 I, I completely understand that, man. And that's just, I understand because you're coming into it from 2020. Yeah. So my entry point was more like, probably like 1990, 91, somewhere around there. So, you know, there's close to a 30 year time gap between our, our experiences. But I was interested to see what you thought of it. You know, I, I knew that it wasn't going to be one that was going to blow your mind by any, you know, stretch of the imagination. But like I said, just being that it's on Halloween, it's kind of a party zone. It's one that doesn't take its, too serious and it has some pretty decent effects in terms of makeup effects and creature mm-hmm. effects and stuff like that like i said i think that's part of the reason why i like this one it's a good one i can throw on in the background it has some pretty decent scenes it's one you can tune out but then tune right back into and it has enough going on where it's not completely schlocky and like i said being that it was shot on a, a moderate budget and it was only limited to I think they said 18 screens in Detroit. One of the producers flew there and he got in touch with a guy who was like the big distributor for that market via Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And he offered the guy 80,000 bucks. He's like, you know, we're, we're willing to spend $80,000 to promote the film, whether it's in radio, newspaper ads, promotions, like we can do autograph signings with posters, you know, whatever. And the guy liked the idea. And so he's like, all right, we'll give you 18 screens in Detroit in an opening night and uh yeah uh, on its limited run like it made about three million they said that if it had opened up nationwide at the rate that it was making that money it would have had been one of the highest grossing horror films i want to say of that year maybe even close to the decade dang yeah so nothing to snuff out but just a, a couple of interesting things i wanted to know about the film because i'm a nerd and i like some of this stuff right like I said at the beginning, like, especially around this time of year, it's a fantastic movie to put on. Include it with somebody's fucking, you know, like, movie marathon or something. Yeah, like, this one for me is usually one that, that can kind of be like a Kickstarter. Not necessarily one to close the night, mm-hmm. um, even though I could see you doing that. But I think I like yours where Trick or Treat more or less like a nightcapper. But I like this one to kind of kickstart my Halloween. But before I, before I sign off on this one, uh, just a couple of interesting trivia bits. 
is that uh, this film was originally, even during filming, was entitled Halloween Party. Okay. It wasn't until uh, the production company, there was a guy who was one of the producers for Halloween, and he contacted them, and he's like, look, you can't use the name Halloween Party because it infringes on the Halloween franchise. And they're like, um, it has nothing to do with the Halloween franchise. It just happens to be on Halloween. But anyway, long story short, he's like, uh, he's like, look, I know you guys have, there's some kind of, um, cause I kept saying like a, a, a ECN or EC, uh, ENC, something like that. There was some kind of agreement that, uh, distributors have for titles and shit like that. But the guy said, he's like, I know you have that. He's like, but I guarantee you won't be able to get any more after that film if you do this. That's what he told them. So they changed the name to Night of the Demons. Mm. And so during the opening title sequence or that animation, mm-hmm. when you see the actual name of the film, like Night of the Demons, it was actually matted over Halloween Party was actually in that opening sequence. Oh, that's um, funny. But they had to add in Night of the Demons in post. <laughs> like it almost became a nightmare because some of the equipment was like disassembled and shipped back to Australia. Oh, shit. Um, yeah, and at that time period, too, a lot of it was done in camera, mm-hmm. and it was done with, like, construction and our paper, that is, and, like, everything was practical. It wasn't like they were using CGI in this either. It, it took them about a month to film, is what they said, the entire opening sequence. But on top of that, I did want to mention this. The two people that worked on that animated sequence, one of them was uh, this guy named Kevin Kutchaver. Mm-hmm. He was approached by the line producer, this guy named Don Robinson, to work on the title sequence. And he happened to be dating this lady named Kathy Zelinsky at the time, Kevin, that is. And she's a creator and the animator for the title sequence. But uh, she was a Disney animator. And some of her works, I know you're going to know because we grew up during this time period. But she's the one who designed Ursula for The Little Mermaid. Shit. And she, she designed Jafar. And uh, Aladdin, <laughs> nice. And she was she was known as the queen of horror at Disney because she liked to work with villainous characters. She helped create a lot of those character designs. But because she was dating Kevin at the time, he asked her to help, and so that's how they got on board. So that's why it has a little bit of that Disney. She said uh, some of her influence came from Fantasia for those opening sequences. So there's a little bit of that in the opening sequence play. So I thought that was really cool. Hmm. Uh, I mentioned earlier there was a, a clerk in this film, an actor named James W. Quinn. He was the one who did the demon voices for Angela and for Suzanne, when they had quickly characters in this film. And the reason they chose him is because he said he grew up really enjoying watching the movie The Exorcist, and he liked mimicking the demon voices of the Zuzu and whatever in that film. And that was like a gag he could do with his friends and kind of freak people out or whatever. And so they got him to do it because he knew he could do that voice. So anytime you hear those demon voices, it's him. <laughs> it's kind of neat. Oh, yeah. uh, there's a line that Stooch says in the film. He says something to the effect of, uh, eat a bowl of salt. I don't know if you remember that or not. Uh, a little bit. Yeah. All right. But uh, he said that was a line he stole from John Belushi. Because that was a line that John Belushi had used on stage that got him suspended when he was uh, working with the Second uh, City in Chicago mm. right, before he got on with SNL. So uh, he said that was kind of a, like an homage to John Belushi. I thought that was kind of cool. And I want to see if there's anything else. Um, the only other person really of note was like Amelia Kincaid. She talked about the fact that the film got its L.A. premiere at the Man's Chinese Theater. 
And apparently that was like a very prestigious theater for a lot of openings for old classic Hollywood. Yeah. Yeah, The Chinese. So she said, yeah, yeah. She said she was, you know, really kind of doting on that. And that was really cool. So it was kind of neat going through those special features and seeing some of the people who, you know, were in this film talking about their time on the film and how a lot of them kind of got their breaks. Like for example, the guy who played Roger, he said literally that he, was in LA for a couple of months. He wasn't getting any jobs. He said he bought a ticket to fly back to New York. Uh, he's just going to tell his agent, you know, like he was going to make up a story about a family emergency, essentially, just so he, you know, that was his way out. Mm-hmm. He said, but he got a call from his agent saying that there was an actor who was, you know, initially going to play Roger. who got a haircut and they didn't like <laughs> the way his character looked now because of it. And they wanted to bring him in to audition for it. And, you know, he's like, uh, he said he, he didn't know what to do because he was kind of a, he said if he didn't get this job, he was basically going to be homeless in LA until he could find a way to get to New York. He said, but the thing that he liked about it, like we mentioned earlier, that he wasn't going to die in the first 15 minutes of the film. And not only that, but he was a survivor and a hero. And he's like, yeah, I want to do this. And he, so he did. And that opened up other doors for him, what have you. Kathy Podewell, the lady who played Judy in this film, she said basically she was only doing like TV stuff and she was kind of like on the brink of not wanting to be an actor anymore. She was like, ah, you know, if, if nothing works out, just kind of do whatever. And she got the part and she wanted to quit in her day job. And that was the moment she knew that she wanted to be an actress, you know, like nice. through and through. And so she did. The guy who played Sal in this film, it was literally his first film role. So yeah, it was like a lot of people's first, like Steve Johnson's first film as his own studio. Like he wasn't working for other people. Mm-hmm. So, you know, like it was a stepping stone for a lot of people. And you could tell a lot of people had fun in this film. And the house that they actually filmed at was in downtown Los Angeles. It wasn't as spooky as it looked, you know, in the film, but it still had an aesthetic that really fit the mold for what they were going for. So it worked out in their favor. Unfortunately, it doesn't exist anymore. It got knocked down, and now it's like a Ralph's grocery store or something like that. Oh, so, shit, yeah. Yeah, it kind of sucks. But last thing I didn't want to mention is there was a really famous special effects or visual effects person on this film that wasn't Steve Johnson. So during the finale with all of the actors who wound up becoming possessed throughout the film, mm-hmm. when they're kind of like chasing after Judy and, and Roger, because the makeup was so intense, you know, some of these actors had to be in the chair for 11 or 12 hours just to apply makeup. Steve Johnson brought in a lot of people he knew. And one of those uh, people happened to be this guy named Randall William Cook. He is a three-time Oscar winner. Not only is it three times, but three times in a row for best visual effects makeup for his work in Lord of the Rings films. Oh, shit. Yeah. When he so, said three times uh, in a row, I was going to guess Lord of the Rings, but... Yeah, and that's what it was for. And uh, yeah, so he was brought on, even though he didn't get credited, but he did help with some of the finale makeup for uh, the, the demon finale, so to speak. So yeah, I was like, man, some really interesting things. Like if you're a fan of this film, I highly recommend checking out what Screen Factory did with this film. I know Anchor Bay released it back in 2004, I believe, for DVD. And Anchor Bay is a pretty reputable uh, distributor for DVDs. I know they did a pretty good job with there. So it's just really cool, man. Like so this film it still kind of, you know, gets its play because it has that cult status. And it, 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 for me, it's a fun Halloween film. Hell yeah. 
Let's see, I think that'll be it for Night of the Demons. Are we going to start in on our request next week? I'm not opposed, dude. I'm totally up for that. Let's do that then. So next week, if y'all want to hear us talk about, who is it, 1976? Yeah. 1976's Carrie. Oh, that's going to be fun. That is. Then please hit subscribe however you're listening to us right now. If you could also rate and review us however you're listening to us right now, that'd be super cool because algorithms and getting up in them and the whole world being run by them and all of that jazz. Like, you guys understand, you're listening to a podcast. So to go along with that, you can always go check out our website, www.friedsquirms.com. You can contact us through the website or by emailing us, squirmcast at gmail.com. Check out our entire back catalog over at the website, or while you're there, click the links up at the top. We are part of the Earverm Podcast Network. Go listen to the other shows over on there. Listen to me talk about nerdy shit over on General Nerdery. Listen to the boys of The Art of Wargaming. Talk about war treatises mixed with modern wargaming, such as Belagarth and Warhammer 40k. Other shows to come. Keep checking back to Earverm for that. You can find us across all the social medias. Just search for Fried Squirms. We'll be there. Yeah. Yeah, the only thing I would say is if you have recommendations, like we're going to be doing soon, that makes it easier. So we like those. If you have suggestions or if you're an independent filmmaker and you want somebody to get some eyeballs on your films, let us know. We'll be looking for that challenge as well. Hell yeah. But for this week, I'm Tyler. I'm Danny. Fried Squirms, out.